following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Father, we do thank you for so much for the privilege of having heard the gospel, having someone that you brought in our lives to proclaim that message to us. Lord, may you move in us to do the same. Lord, especially in these things that we have coming up next Saturday at the Glendale Cruise Night, the food packs, Lord. God, may you stir in us a passion, Lord, to see your son lifted up in these ways and the opportunities we have to proclaim his good news. Move in us in that way. Lord, we thank you for that gospel message. We thank you for Obadiah and, Lord, the, how the gospel is even seen in, in this book, the Old Testament. Lord, I pray now that you would bless your word, that you would open our eyes to its truth and help us to understand and apply it. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, as Lou mentioned, we are starting, we started last week in the series uh, in the last 12 books of the Old Testament, a group popularly referred to as the Minor Prophets. Again, these were a group of men who prophesied from about 850 B.C. all the way uh, through about 400 years later, 400 to 450 B.C. And as I mentioned before, they are 12 separate books, 12 separate prophets, but they are put together on one scroll because they are smaller in length. And because they are smaller in length, that's why they, the, the term was coined and became popular, the minor prophets. But, but since they are in one book, in Christ's day, they were really known as the twelve. They were seen as, as one unit, one group of men. And again, though different, and though they span different times, they had different, uh, different situations, different circumstances, different themes and focuses between them. But they are, in fact, a much shorter book. The twelve have between them, if you were to count up all the verses, a little over a thousand verses. The three major prophets have almost five times that number, just between the three of them. And again, though the term minor may seem to reflect that they are important or that they really do not need to be read, that that idea apparently has seeped into the church today. I uh, was able to find a Gallup poll that was taken about 13 years ago, and the poll's focus was on Bible reading. And one of the questions it asked of those who regularly read the Bible was, what is your favorite book? And what book do you think came up on the top? Psalms. That's right. Actually, Psalms in that survey was considered uh, the most popular book that was being read, followed by Genesis, then Matthew, then John, then uh, Proverbs. I looked some more, found a few other surveys, more informal ones, and typically Psalms and Proverbs, uh, Matthew and John were, were near the top. And it was good to see there are a couple Old Testament books in that group. But uh, one of the surveys I found where they listed actually the top 30 of this person's most favorite 30 books of the Bible, not one of them included one of the 12. So then I went over to BibleGateway.com. Anybody ever go to that website? It's actually very helpful. Um, They had a little thing they did where the top 100 most read verses um, in the Bible, at least read from their website. Guess which one was on top of that one? John 3.16. That's right. Uh, John 3.16. So I guess, you know, that uh, rainbow-haired guy with the posters at the sporting events is making an impact. (laughs) Is he still around, by the way? I haven't seen him in a while. I heard he got rested. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's great, right? <laughs> well, as looking through the rest of those verses in the top 100, there were a handful of verses from the prophet Isaiah, but the first and only verse from the 12 came in at number 75, Micah 6, 8. That's the only verse that's considered in the top 100, at least on that website. So again, it does seem the 12 are somewhat obscure. And even among the 12, there are those that are more obscure than others. Today, our journey in the 12 begins with probably the most obscure prophet of them all, Prophet Obadiah. My, I'd venture to guess he's probably the least read book in the Bible. In fact, I, I heard some of you took a while getting those pages over. to Where's Obadiah? I can't even find this thing. First hour, I was helping my kid. We were, he was half, Lou was halfway through by the time we found it uh, in my kid's Bible. I mean, it is tucked away. It is the shortest book in the Old Testament, just 258 words in Hebrew. It's the third shortest book in the Bible, is the book of Obadiah. And though it may be the, the minor of the minors, if you will, it carries a major message. And so please turn to this obscure little book right before the book of Jonah, tucked away deep in your Old Testament. Because what Obadiah is going to teach us this morning, remind us of, of God's vindication, God's vindication of himself and the vindication of his people. Obadiah begins his book with the statement, the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God. And this opening tells us the author's name. And it also tells us that he has a message. That name Obadiah means in Hebrew a servant or a worshiper of Yahweh. Some scholars think that actually that wasn't his real name, but that the author just gave himself a general description. But I think it is the actual name of the author of this book. Because for one, if you look at every single prophet from Isaiah to Malachi, they always begin by giving their name. And also too, Obadiah was a common name in the Old Testament. There are at least 12 Obadiahs that uh, you can find in the Old Testament. Some have identified this Obadiah as perhaps the one that... Uh, do you remember the, the guy who hid the hundred prophets from Jezebel as she was murdering the prophets of God? Uh, his name was Obadiah. Some think it may have been him. Others think this Obadiah may be the one mentioned as one of King Jehoshaphat's officials in Second Chronicles 17. We can't be sure. We're given no information really about him except his name. Like many of the twelve, Obadiah didn't see it necessary to go into details about his own life. He had a message to bring, and that was the most important thing to him, was to deliver the message that God had given him. And notice he describes here that message that came to him as a vision. A vision. That's the same word or the same root as the word we talked about last week. One of the titles of the prophets is a seer. One who sees, one who's given understanding and perception from God. A direct message. And that's the, the word that's given here. It doesn't mean necessarily that he saw a vision, that, that something appeared before his eyes, but it more has the idea of that he was given uh, understanding, he was given perception, and that idea of seeing, seeing what God had wanted him to speak, uh, this message that he wanted him to speak. And that's what Obadiah says in the next line. He says, thus says the Lord God, or thus says sovereign Yahweh, thus says master Yahweh. And that message is concerning what? What is this message going to be about? Look again at verse 1. He's given a message concerning Edom. Concerning Edom. Now that's Edom, not Eden. In order to understand this message, we need to know who is Edom. What is Edom? Where is Edom? What is he talking about here? Edom finds its beginnings way back early in the Old Testament in the womb of a woman named Rebekah, the wife of Isaac. After being barren for almost 20 years, Isaac had prayed to the Lord that he would provide, and God gave 
uh, him a child. In fact, two twins were conceived within Rebecca. But, but Rebecca was in a difficult circumstance. I feel sorry for her because uh, you can imagine that there's a lot of activity that was going on in her womb, more, more so than most pregnant women. I can imagine her often telling, hey, Isaac, feel this. Oh, there's another one. Isaac, feel this again. Problem was, as the scripture mentions in Genesis 25, these two twins were actually struggling and fighting before they were even born. That's what was going on inside of her. And God said in Genesis 25, 22, he told Rebecca that there were two nations that were inside of her and that the older one, the one that would come out first, would serve the younger. And when that first one came out, by the way, who were the name of these two twins? These twins, Jacob and Esau. Very good class. That's right. Jacob and Esau were these two men at that time, babies who were inside. And when they came out, Esau came out first and he was noted that he was reddish in color. Uh, The word for red is Adom. And so they named him Esau, Esau, which means this idea of reddish color. Esau didn't value his birthright, though. Remember that story, right? When they were older and he was out in the field and he was hungry and he came in and and uh, his brother Jacob was cooking some stew. Remember that? And he said, give me some of that. It's in fact, Genesis 25, 30 says, let me have a swallow of that red stuff there. Again, the word Adom, for I'm famished. And then the text says, therefore, his name is called Edom. So Esau was also referred to as Edom. And in that day, he sold his birthright. He traded it to Jacob for that bowl of stew. Well, let me, if I can use, it didn't work so well. Richie, with me this time? All right, there we go. Let me show you where Edom is. Edom is uh, a, a nation that is south of Judah. Here's Israel and Judah. Edom is generally in this region, south of Judah. Esau actually became a large family. Uh, he had been prospered, and it says that he moved to the land of Seir, which is this region south of Israel. It is just south of Israel, south of, here's the, the Dead Sea, or as my daughter used to like to call, this one's the Alive Sea, the Sea of Galilee. <laughs> and so both of those define the eastern border of Israel, and Edom was south, south of there. And in that region in Edom, uh, is known for a lot of cliffs, a lot of mountains. In fact, the city of Petra. Have you ever seen the pictures of that? That r- cool structure built within the rock? That is in the southern part, or was in the southern part of Edom. Some thought it may have been the capital of Edom. Well, here we have Edom settling just south to a, of a land that Jacob would one day inhabit, uh, his descendants, the land of Israel. These two nations neighbored one another for centuries. Jacob and Esau struggle within their mother's womb. And so, too, the nations of Edom and Israel struggled throughout their history. They were always in conflict. Over time, Edom became very prosperous. If you notice here, um, there was a route that went from the Red Sea here all the way up along, through Edom, along the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and Jordan, up through Damascus. That was a popular trade route. It was known as the King's Highway. If you remember in Scripture and Numbers, Moses, when he was traveling with the people of Israel, and they had asked Edom if they could travel through along the king's highway, Moses was wanting to travel along this route. But the king of Edom said no. And that route allowed them to become financially prosperous because many traders used that along the way. And so they would stop along an Edomite or for terrace or stop in, you know, how we stop at Motel 6 and stuff like that. They had those in Edom back in the day. So... They, would, they actually gained a lot financially from that. And here in Obadiah, we're about a thousand years later, a thousand years after Esau had moved to the land of Seir. And here it says in Obadiah that the sovereign Lord had a message for Edom, a message of judgment. 
God's message through Obadiah can be divided up into three sections. The first nine verses, we have Edom's judgment declared. Then in verses 10 through 14, we have Edom's crimes described. And finally, in verses 15 to 21, Edom's destruction determined. Let's look first at Edom's judgment declared in verse 1. Let me read that again. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We've heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If these came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you'll be ruined. Would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border. And the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There's no understanding in it. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Taman, in order that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Here we see God's declaration of judgment against Edom. Obadiah begins his vision, begins what the Lord had revealed to him by saying that a a message has come to him and to the people of Judah, a message that calls the nations to gather together to battle Edom. God says in verse 2 that he would make Edom small. The idea there means uh, unimportant, insignificant, weak. And he uses this idea because uh, this word small, because as we see here in verse 3, Edom was feeling pretty big about themselves. They felt pretty high and protected in those high cliffs. They had built many structures within those mountains, and they were difficult to get them out of there and defeat them. And so Edom felt pretty confident about that, saying, Hey, let let someone try and come take us out. No one can take us down from here. But God says, You know, you can put yourselves high up in those cliffs, as high as the eagles put their nests. You can even build your fortresses in the stars for that matter. It doesn't matter because I will bring you down. You cannot build a place too high from me. And there's really an irony here because Edom in their pride, pride in the Old Testament is often depicted as raising oneself up, as lifting the neck, as, as raising oneself high and lifted. And that's exactly what Edom did here with their uh, structures and their houses and their defenses. They lifted them high. Now Edom's overconfidence could be understandable because of what just happened to them. If we go back, I'm going to show you my chart. Maybe, Rich, if you can pull that up. Keep going. There we go. You're going to get used to this chart. Sorry, if you're not into timelines and stuff, sorry about that. But here it is. I want you to get familiar with here. Obadiah is about in the time frame of 850 B.C. when King Jehoram was king. And I mention that because about 10 to 15 years earlier, under Jehoram's father, Jehoshaphat, uh, I, I mentioned this battle that took place. You remember a few weeks ago when we were talking about the armor of God and I mentioned that uh, there was this uh, battle that took place and Jehoshaphat gathered his army and at the front of the line of the army he put the choir and they began singing and declaring praises to God and God then brought victory over the enemy. Well, the enemy that came to invade Judah was Ammon and Moab and Edom. 
Edom was part of that group. They came and they went against Judah. God defeated them. He caused them to turn on one another and destroy each other. And as a result of that, a consequence for Edom was that she now had to pay tribute to Judah. She was now under them. Well, when Jehoshaphat's son Jehoram took the throne, Edom saw that as an opportunity. He said, we're not going to pay you anymore. We're tired of it. Nah. And so Jehoram gathers his army, moves south into Edom, trying to basically subjugate them again and force them to pay. But they were unsuccessful. Edom was able to turn away the army and they were uh, able to remain not having to pay Jehoram anymore. And so you can understand that if after that victory, they would be proud and overconfident. You guys, no one can take us out. We are well protected in these cliffs. But God says, Edom, you can't build a fort high enough to protect yourself from me. In fact, he says, I will make you small. The translators translate that in the future tense, but actually in the Hebrew, it's written in the perfect tense, which is often referring to an event that's already happened. Literally, we could say that the, the, the God's saying there, I have made you small, but it hasn't happened yet. In fact, Edom isn't totally wiped out until uh, 70 AD by the Romans. Here we have what scholars like to call a prophetic perfect. And what that simply means is that they, it's written in the perfect tense, which again usually refers to something that's happened, but it's translated or its intent is to be in the future. The idea is that this event is so certain, I'm going to speak as if it has already happened. I have made you small, Edom. My judgment has come and your ju- it is certain that it will happen. I will surely take you down. God reemphasizes or further emphasizes the certainty of this judgment taking place in verse 4 when he says, thus declares the Lord. Something he says four different times within this book. Just to emphasize the point. God is speaking here. This isn't just Obadiah speaking. I am the one giving this message. He said in verse 1, thus says the sovereign Lord. And again in verse 1, we have heard a report from the Lord. At the end of verse 18, for the Lord has spoken. These give the impression, these give the point, they emphasize the fact that when God declares judgment, it's going to happen. When he raises his hand against any nation, there's nothing that can stop it. Consider the great kingdoms of the earth. Remember Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome? They're no longer mighty as they once were. All of them have fallen. And Edom thought she was safe in those cliffs. But God's saying, no, no nation is safe. And as I was looking at this passage this week, it it really, I think, served as a reminder to me, as a warning to our own nation, as a warning to us, not to put confidence in our military might or our economy or our rich resources or our ingenuity or our accomplishments, our position in the world, even our Christian heritage or supposed Christian heritage. None of these will protect against God in the day that we turn against Him. And I think America has turned against Christ in order to serve the gods of hedonism and wealth and humanism, false religion. Beloved, our nation is not safe within our cliffs. They are not high enough. And that's why we're going to be out in Glendale on Saturday. That's why we have these food packs, because we must proclaim the gospel. We must bring a message of good news of salvation through Jesus Christ to our nation. That's why we must speak the truth that every single one of us is a sinner in need of a Savior. Are we not? Not just us in this room, every single person on this planet, every single citizen of the United States and every other country in this world is a sinner before God. 
We have to tell others that like Edom, our sin deserves judgment. It deserves God's judgment. We must declare that Christ, though, will forgive any who turn from their sin and place their trust in Him. You see, we must preach to all in our land that Christ's death on the cross is the only payment for sin. It's only through Jesus Christ and Him alone that we can come to know God, have eternal life, and be forgiven of our sin, to have our debts paid. This is a message our country needs to hear. We need to boldly deliver this message because America, as any nation on this earth, needs to be transformed from the inside out. We need to pray for revival before our country suffers the same fate as Edom. And maybe it has already happened. I don't know, but we need to bring the gospel and boldly declare it. Just as Obadiah was here, declaring the message, not only of God's judgment, but we'll also see God's deliverance. For when God declares judgment, it is a certainty. There's nothing that's going to stop it. And that was his emphasis and focus regarding Edom here in verses 2 through 4, that that my judgment is certain. And then in verses 5 to 9, he tells them my judgment is thorough. That was the point of those illustrations he brought up about the robber and the grape gatherer. In both cases, right, when, when, when a thief comes into a person's home, do they normally take everything? Usually it's what they can carry, right, what they can load up. They leave some things. Or the, he gives the illustration of a grape gatherer goes out into the vineyard, and usually they don't take all the grapes. They leave some sometimes for those who are poor who would glean the fields. Other times they just miss some. God was saying here, he's saying, you know, when, when a thief comes, he doesn't take it all. When grape gatherers go into the vineyard, they don't take it all. But I'm going to take it all. You're going to be devastated. Even the things that you have hidden, I will, I will take out. He says there that they will be mined out of the land and that's what the point is of that question that it repeats twice. Twice, Would they not leave something? Does not the thief leave something? Does not the grape gatherer leave something? And that point is thrust home is right between those two illustrations, he interjects the emotionally charged statement, Oh, you're going to be ruined. You're going to be destroyed. I'm going to ransack you, Esau. Nothing will be left. You're done. You're done. He tells us in verse 7 that this is going to happen through the, their allies, through those who were neighboring nations, through those whom they thought were friends. That phrase at the end of verse 7, there is no understanding in it, means that Edom will be taken completely by surprise. We had no idea this was going to come. Verse 8, he says that though Edom was known for wisdom, that too will be found wanting. Edom was a place where uh, it was known as a uh, place of wisdom, um, Eliphaz, one of the men that visited Job, he was a t- Timonite, which is a city in Edom. Talks about, too, historically, Edom had much wisdom they gleaned from the Egyptians and others that would come through their trade routes and share information and understanding. But God says, you will be devoid of wisdom in that day when I judge you. In fact, your warriors, your military will have no idea what to do. They will be demoralized and frustrated and terrified. And then verse 9 ends with the declaration of Edom's sure slaughter. These verses are sobering. It's a sobering picture of God's judgment. He's, he's now leveled his sights on the people of Edom. The question is, why? Why this severe judgment? What is it that has prompted God to merit such a terrifying response from him? Well, if we look, verse 10, we'll see what it is. Verses 1 to 9 show Edom's judgment declared. and verses 10 to 14, we'll see Edom's crime described. Look again at verse 10. He says there, because of violence to whom? To your brother Jacob. 
Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over the calamity in the day of their disaster. Do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives. And do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. Here we see the reason for God's judgment. He says it in a general statement in verse 10, and then he gives the specifics in verses 11 through 14. Why was God's sure and thorough judgment going to come upon Edom? What was it that he said in verse 10 again? Because of violence to your brother Jacob. God's anger was kindled because of Edom's cruel treatment of Israel. And again, remember that Israel and Edom have been at odds ever since the beginning. Edom has had a seething hatred for Israel all through the centuries, which again began when Jacob and Esau fought in their mother's womb. And then later, when they were older, Jacob deceptively took the blessing that Esau was to get from his father Isaac. And and, and Esau said at that moment, Jacob, I'm going to kill you. As soon as our father's dead, I'm taking you out. Now, they did end up reconciling. But a few centuries later, as I mentioned before, the king of Edom, when Moses had asked for permission to pass through his land along the king's highway, the king of Edom said, no, and if any of you take one step in my land, we will attack and kill you. They were just asking to go through. They, they weren't going to do anything. Then there was the Edomite Doeg. Doeg was a scoundrel. He was the guy who, if you remember back when David was running from Saul and he went to the priests of Nov and he, they gave him nourishment and, 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 and his men, they fed them. Well, Doeg went back to Saul and he said, Saul, these guys, these priests of Nov, they are against you. They were taking, they took in David. Saul was incensed. He was infuriated. He said, I want somebody to go up and kill those priests. But wisely, none of his advisors or those with him said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go kill a priest, except for Doeg. This Edomite said, I'll do it. And he went up there and he not only slaughtered the priests, but their wives and their children as well. 150 years later or so was the attack of the singing soldiers when uh, uh, Edom joined Moab and Ammon to invade Judah without provocation. There are several passages in the Bible that talk about Edom's longstanding hatred for Israel. In Psalm 83, it describes how Edom wanted nothing more than her destruction, saying, Come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. In Amos 1.11, it says how Edom pursued his brother with a sword and was continually angry with Israel. And uh, by the way, too, Herod the Great. Remember him, the guy who had the children who were two and under killed so that he could get take out jesus he was a descendant of edom anyway here in obadiah edom was charged with committing violence against israel once again and verses 11 through 14 indicate uh, that this violence it was a specific event that took place a specific happening if you notice the repetition in verse in uh, 10 different times in these four verses of in that day or on the day or the day He's speaking about a specific time when a foreign army invaded Jerusalem and came in and ransacked the city. It was a devastating day. 
How many times did he repeat the Jerusalem's misfortune, her disaster, her destruction, her calamity? And Edom was there. Edom was there and took advantage of Jerusalem's vulnerability. And before getting into the specifics of this indictment, I I did want to talk a little bit about the the historical setting of when this took place. Because the question is, well, what event is Obadiah talking about here? When did it happen? Scripture records five occasions where Judah was invaded. And of those five, there are two where Jerusalem was ransacked and it mentioned by a foreign army and it mentions that Edom was present. One of those is during, if we could go to the next slide, it's similar, but I want to highlight a couple things. One is during this early period, during King Jehoram that I just mentioned. Others believe that it was actually the time, the third invasion of Nebuchadnezzar when he came in in 586 B.C. and completely wiped out Jerusalem. The temple was decimated. In fact, all that's left there, it was, uh, uh, and there was nothing left, essentially. The city was burned to the ground. The walls torn down. And some believe that because of Obadiah's description here, that, that it, it better fit that idea when the third invasion, when Jerusalem was completely wiped out. Also, too, in Psalm 137 and Ezekiel 25 mentions that the Edomites were there in that day when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. But I think that uh, the invasion during King Jehoram by the Philistines and the Arabians better fits what's mentioned here. One reason indicates that, again, when the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed Jerusalem. There was nothing left. Second Chronicles 36 says they took out everything. They burned the city to the ground. But here in Obadiah, Obadiah says one of the indictments was that you cast lots for Jerusalem. So there was something left. After this battle, something at least enough to divide up the spoils with the invading army. Also, Obadiah says nothing here of the temple's destruction, an event he likely would have noted. And thirdly, Obadiah makes no mention of the Babylonians, which is interesting because in every other prophet that talks about the fall of Jerusalem they met, uh, during the time of Babylon, they mention the Babylonian invaders. Obadiah doesn't. Also, too, if you look at the description of the attack of the Philistines in Second Chronicles 21 during King Jehoram's day, it says there that the invaders came in and they plundered Jehoram's palace. They took all of his stuff out of it and his family. Now, to be able to get to the palace and to plunder it in the way they did means they would have had to do quite a bit of damage to the city itself as well in order to have the freedom to move in and do that. So it would match exactly what Obadiah is describing here. Fifthly, the Canaanites and the Philistines who Obadiah brings up In verses 19 and 20, those were enemies of Israel, but those are enemies that are talked about much earlier in the time period, not during the time of the Babylonian exile. Also, too, Jeremiah quotes from Obadiah 1.9. Jeremiah was a prophet. You can see on our little chart here. He was a prophet during the time of the exile. And he was known for quoting several prophets before him, such as Isaiah and Amos. And here he quotes as well Obadiah. who was was earlier than him, most likely. And finally, if you again notice, as I talked about last week, Obadiah was given in in our Bibles and in the Hebrew canon in the first six books, the earliest books. And it wouldn't make sense if he was uh, an event that took place here during the time of Haggai and Zechariah or around that time. He should have been grouped with them in the canon, or we would have expected that. It would be strange to put him so early on. Now, again, I think the evidence is strong. We can't be 100% certain about the date, but we can be certain about the fact that what happened and what Edom did and the judgment that God brought upon them. Because, again, rather than helping Jerusalem, rather than helping Israel during this invasion, it says in verse 11 that you stood aloof. 
That doesn't mean that they just stood off and watched. The idea behind this statement is they stood off ready to pounce. Kind of like a vulture. You know, a vulture waits and watches as the wolves come in or uh, the, the animals come in and tear up the carcass. And after they leave, what do the vultures do? They swoop in and take what's left. They're not standing there just watching for entertainment. They're waiting. And that's exactly what God says the Edomites did. You stood off and waited for that invading army to destroy your brother. And then you went in and kicked him while he was down and plundered him further. They exploited Judah with the same contempt that this foreign army did in invading her. And not only that, Obadiah says you took pleasure in it. Verses 12 to 14, it's, it almost seems like Obadiah is there and he's pleading with the Edomites to don't gloat, don't rejoice, don't, don't take advantage of your kin's calamity, don't harm them in their situation. But the pleas fell upon deaf ears. That word gloat in verse 12 literally means to look upon. And the context here is the idea of looking upon with contempt for it says that they rejoiced in Jerusalem's demise and boasted about her destruction and that word boasting is an interesting word it literally means to enlarge the mouth this idea of they enlarge the mouth so they could speak many words against jerusalem and as we look further edom's sin didn't stop at taunting or reviling jerusalem they took it a step further by actually entering the gates of the city and participating in the looting of jerusalem that was going on there rather than aiding those who needed help they brought further harm And more than that, if we continue on and look at verse 14, it says that they positioned themselves around and outside the city so that any who were trying to escape, they would pick off, probably take from them whatever they had and either kill them or turn them over to the foreign invaders to be taken into exile. So here we see in verses 11 to 14, there was an escalation in Edom's wickedness from verbal to physical from just watching the plundering to participating in it, from just enjoying Jerusalem's devastation to furthering it. And so God pronounces a fierce judgment. And again, there's a passion and an emotion and a conviction as God speaks when He's saying, you're going to be ruined and destroyed from this. Oh, how you're going to be destroyed. One has to ask, what, what is it that not only fueled God's judgment, but such a, a visceral reaction? What is it that brought such emotion and passion from God And again, look at verse 10. He says, because of violence to your brother, Jacob. It's an interesting way to put it. What does that tell us that God expected from Edom? He expected Edom not to act as an enemy, but as family. Verses 9 and 10, he even uses the the names Esau and Jacob rather than the names of the nations, Edom and Israel. I think he uses the personal names of their the, the founding fathers, literally, of their nations to remind them, you came from the same womb. You're brothers. Your origins were, were a part of one family. You came from Esau. You came from Jacob. And how could you treat your brother like that? Deuteronomy 23, 7. God told Israel, you shall not detest Edomite. Yes, I know he does not like you. And yeah, they just wouldn't let us go through their land. But you shall not hate Edomite, for he is your brother. Looking here in Obadiah 12, God expected the same from them. He said, don't gloat over your brother's day. You see, what made Edom's sin all the greater wasn't just that they took advantage of God's people, Israel, but how they treated a people who had a closer connection to them than any other nation on earth. Edom was the only nation that could say, we descended from the same person 
the same family, the same mother and father as Israel did. We can't miss the message here. How serious God takes brotherly love and unity. Because Edom's chief sin here was her unbrotherliness, if I could put it that way. Her disloyalty. And that mattered to God. Loyalty matters to God. Unity is important to God. If the harmony between these two nations was important to Him, if if Edom's treatment of Israel caused such a reaction from God, how much more important is how we treat one another as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ? I think that message is very clear here in this book. Psalm 133.1 says how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Or Jesus and the apostles, multiple times they commanded and called us to love one another. In fact, this command by far is the most often repeated command in the New Testament to believers. To love one another. We just went through Ephesians. And I didn't choose Obadiah for this reason, to repeat the themes there. I chose Obadiah first because I think that's the first one that appears chronologically. But it is very connected to Ephesians in a lot of ways. The encouragement and the emphasis and the focus and the importance of unity, of brotherly love, of treating one another as God has called us to. And in Ephesians, that was a major thrust, wasn't it? As believers, we're interconnected with one another. God is serious about how we treat each other. Any mistreatment of a brother, any ongoing sinful action against a fellow believer in Christ is a terrible sin before God. Betrayal, dishonesty, unfaithfulness, treachery, deceit, bitterness, harsh treatment of a brother or sister in Christ. This matters a lot to God. If what Edom did mattered to him, and they weren't even uh, related in terms of spiritually speaking necessarily, but believers are. If it was so important to him how Edom treated Israel, how Israel treated Edom, how much more so for us? As children of Christ, children of God. This is one message we cannot ignore from Edom. That unbrotherliness is particularly serious to God. We need to value what matters to God, don't we? We need to value what matters. Let this be a a weighty reminder to us that God is watching. And He's watching how we treat one another. He's watching how we treat our wives, our husbands, our children. He's watching how we treat those that we work with. He's watching. Let us exhibit brotherly love to one another. Amen? Well, we've seen Edom's judgment declared and Edom's crimes described. Let's now look at Edom's destruction determined. And for that, let's pick it up in verse 15. Is there Obadiah? God speaks through Obadiah saying, For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. But on Mount Zion there will be those who escape, and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be a stubble. And they will set them on fire and consume them, so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken." And those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau, those of the Shephelah, the Philistine plain, and also they will possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria. Benjamin will possess Gilead. And the hosts, exiles of this host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the cities of the Negev. 
delivers will ascend Mount Zion to the judgment to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Here we see God saying the, the outcome of Edom is inevitable. And that demise is cemented here in verse 15 when he says, The day of the Lord, or Yahweh's day, or God's day, is near. It is imminent. It is coming. We're going to talk a lot more about the day of the Lord. It's actually a theme that runs through all of the 12 prophets. We'll look at it more when we get to Joel. But, but in essence, it entails a time when God will bring final judgment upon the world and he will establish his reign through the Messiah, through Jesus Christ. And God is saying, you can be sure, Edom, my judgment is coming because I'm coming to judge all the nations and you're not going to be left out. In fact, my day is imminent when I will judge the whole earth. And we see here in these verses God's vindication. We see God's vindication of himself and the vindication of his people. Notice first how he vindicates his people. In verse 13, he says, do not enter the gate of my people. You see, Edom's sin wasn't just how they treated their brothers, but the fact that their brothers were God's chosen people. You remember way back in time of Abraham, when God approached him and God made him a promise. And what did he tell Abraham? There were a few things that he promised him that day. Do you remember what they were? First was that he would be a great nation, right? Have many descendants. Secondly, he would have the land. And then he says, those who bless you will be blessed. But those who curse or revile you will be cursed. It's exactly what we see happening here. Zechariah 2.8 says, For thus says the the Lord of hosts, After glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you, Israel. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Apple there, he's talking about the opening, the pupil. And guess what? What's the most protected part of our bodies? What is it that we are most fierce about protecting? It's our eye, right? God says, he who touches Israel is as if you're sticking your finger in my eye. Guess what? We respond pretty violently when something's approaching our eye, don't we? It's the same thing God is declaring in Zechariah 2. You provoke me by poking me in the eye. There will be consequences. Verse 15, God promises that Edom would experience the same thing that she did to Israel. Brings to mind the expression in Galatians 6. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap, right? Verse 16 talks about Edom drinking on the holy mountain. That's probably a reference to drinking in celebration as they were reveling and rejoicing in Israel's defeat. And God says, I'm going to turn that one celebration of drinking wine of rejoicing into the wine of my wrath. And you will experience it continually. God's vindication of Israel isn't just in judging those who attacked her, but also in uh, restoring her. That's the whole point in verses 17 to 20. He's talking about that they will, those in Mount Zion or Jerusalem will be a place of protection. In that day when uh, Edom uh, oppressed you, Israel, you weren't able to escape, but there will come a day where I will protect you. You will be protected, and that place will be holy, meaning I will be there. The end of verse 17, God promises Israel will possess their possessions. That is, that they will have the land. And that's what he expands on in verses 19 to 20. He talks about possessing the Negev. That's the region south of Judah, containing mountains and and desert. Also, the Shephelah refers to the foothills, the western plain of Israel along the coast where the Philistines used to dwell. Ephraim is the region in the north And Gilead lies east of the Jordan River. The point is that he's saying, Israel, these regions, the north, south, east, and west of you, you will possess as I have promised you. 
you will be restored. At this point, especially when you get to verse 20 and you're trying to pronounce those names, Lou was pretty nervous this morning, by the way, so let him know he did all right, okay? Some of the, I don't know how you say them. The other, they're difficult to pronounce, right? Some places like Sephiroth, we don't even know where that is for sure. So we're thinking at this point, maybe, okay, as a New Testament believer, what can I take away from this? I don't even know where these places are. I don't know a lot of, of the history here. I don't understand necessarily what's going on. How does this help me? I think Obadiah really does fit what Paul said about the Old Testament in Romans 15.4, which I mentioned last week, where he said that through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Actually, a right understanding of Obadiah will give us hope. Because, again, think about the situation here. The people of Jerusalem had just been ravaged. Many people had lost family or friends. Uh, They lost their possessions. They'd just been attacked. The Edomites, who were supposed to be their brothers, came in and took further advantage of them. And there they're standing with nothing. And Obadiah gets up and says, Thus says the Lord. And who do you think his message was directed towards? Who was he speaking to? Was it Edom? It was Judah. It was concerning Edom. His primary purpose was to encourage those in Jerusalem who had just lost everything. He said, God saw it all. God saw it all. He will deal with this. He will deal with this and bring justice. Again, Obadiah's prophecy wasn't so much for the people of Edom, but for the people of Judah. His message is God will not let this wrong go unpunished. God will bring justice for the sins that have been committed against you. He will not forget your misery. What has been taken from you will be restored. What you have lost will be returned. Those who have wronged you will be dealt with. This is an important message to remember because all through history, God's people have been wronged. They were wronged in Obadiah's day. They are wronged today. His saints continue to be abused, persecuted, maligned, mocked, even killed. There are many believers today now in prison. Maybe some of you suffer persecution or people are paying attention to you because they know you're a believer. I remember the first times when I started working um, the job I had in Idaho and let somebody know I was a Christian. And the change on his face was very interesting. (laughs) Oh, it's like, okay, I just got categorized and boxed and watched. God says any wrongs committed against his people will be dealt with. Deuteronomy 32, 43 says, God will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. Jesus said in Luke 18, 7, Will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry day and night? I was reminded of uh, Revelation 6, 9 and that picture of those who've been martyred in heaven. And they were crying before God, saying, How long, O Lord, how long will our blood go unavenged? And he said, the response to them was, Wait a little longer, a little longer. You know, it's okay to pray for God to defend his people, to pray for him to protect them. It's right to pray that they would be delivered from persecution, that God would bring justice, not as a way to get even, not as a form of vengeance on our parts or from our hearts, but because it's right. Because when God's people are attacked and maligned, it is God is being attacked and maligned. When they killed Jesus, they were going after God. Beloved, just know, know this. As we see in Obadiah, the wrongs committed against you for your faith are not going unnoticed. God sees them. 
Now, he's allowed them for a purpose, just as he allowed Jerusalem to be sacked in that day by Edom and the foreign enemies. But also take an understanding from Obadiah that he will restore you, maybe not in this life, but assuredly in the next. God will make things right. You know, Romans 8, the passage we're familiar with, it talks about nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. The context of that chapter Paul tells us when he refers to a psalm, a psalm that's talking about his people, his children being persecuted, where it says something in the effect of his uh, sheep are being slaughtered all day long. So the whole point of Paul bringing that encouraging message that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ is the fact he's God saying, I know you're going through trials. I know you're getting persecuted. I know you're going through trouble. I can see it and just believe I will not leave you. I'll never forsake you. That's the whole point. And it was based upon the fact that he saw and knows his people are being abused. God promised in Obadiah that the land would be restored. So maybe we don't know exactly where the Negev or the Shephelah are located, but we can know that those are things that were an encouragement to the people of Judah because God was saying, you'll be restored. I will take care of you. In the same way, in 1 Peter 1, 4, it says that, Those who know Christ have an imperishable inheritance reserved in heaven for you. And in this you greatly rejoice, even though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Take comfort. Obadiah should be a book of comfort to God's people. God has his eyes on you and he will keep his promise. We see from Obadiah that God not only will vindicate his people, but God will vindicate himself. We see this in verse 15 when he says that not only will Edom not escape his justice, but no nation will escape. He declares the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. In verse 16, he says all the nations will drink his judgment and become as if they were never were. Right? God has allowed rebellion and creation for millennia. He has seen his people oppressed and abused and killed for centuries, century after century. He watched and witnessed his own son being blasphemed and tortured and murdered by godless men. Numerous unspeakable sins against him, against Jesus and against his children. And one day, God is going to say, that is enough. He will turn to his son and tell him, go now and take your kingdom and rule on earth as you deserve to rule and be worshipped as you deserve to be worshipped. Now is the time. That day is coming. Thank you, Carol. (laughs) That day is coming. We can be certain of it. Isaiah 63 presents this picture of a a divine warrior, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, coming from battle. And it says there he came from Edom. It was a representation of all the nations, but Edom being the color red, because in Isaiah 63, the the watchman looking at the Messiah says, why are you covered in red? It was the red of the blood of those he had destroyed. Revelation 19, Jesus will come on a white horse to destroy his enemies. And that is the message of Obadiah, that God's day is coming. In fact, if we look at the very first phrase, right after Obadiah says the vision of Obadiah, the first phrase he mentions and the last phrase he mentions of this vision is, thus says the sovereign Yahweh. And then at the end, the kingdom will be the Lord's. That's the message of Obadiah. That's the message of the Bible. 
That's exactly the message of the Bible. As we read in Revelation eleven fifteen that when that seventh trumpet sounds, there will be a loud voice in heaven. And this is what that voice will declare. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Christ is coming to establish his kingdom. This, this message is the foundation of Christianity. This is the message of the gospel. It's the foundational message that God will make all things right, that his son will reign, that he will be glorified and worshiped as he deserved, and that he has made a way for those who are his enemies to become his friends and participate in that worship if they seek faith in him, if they repent of their sins and trust in Christ and his work on the cross. But the heart of the message is that Jesus will reign, that Jesus will be king, that Jesus is Lord. That was the cry in Isaiah 52, where it said, How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. And what was the message of good news? Our God reigns. Our God reigns. It's exactly how Obadiah ends this message. Jesus, Matthew 4, 17, the beginning of his ministry. The first thing that Matthew notes that Jesus proclaimed was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or is near. Mark 1 14, the first words that Mark records of Jesus in his gospel is that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That was the message Jesus brought. That is the gospel message. Jesus was saying, I'm returning. My kingdom is near and it's really near because the king is here. And one day I'm coming back. And I will take my entire kingdom. I will judge my enemies and save my friends. And the question that we need to ask ourselves, how will the Lord find you in that day? Now, maybe you may die before his return, but you will face this king. And how will he find you in that day? You don't have to suffer the fate of God's enemies like Edom. Jesus gave his life on the cross And he spilt his blood so that yours would not have to be spilt. Because God will judge sin, and it is right that he does that. So commit your life to Christ today. Commit to him to turn from that sin. Place your trust in him so that when he returns as king, you will rejoice, but not be afraid. You will glory in that day, not cower in fear. For yes, that day is coming. That day is coming. Ask Him for forgiveness today. The day of the Lord is near. The kingdom will be the Lord's. The kingdom of Christ is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. I'd like to give you a minute to to pray silently. Um, Just a couple of things I want you to think about. One is how will you stand before the Lord? Is he your king? The other is just a reminder of the importance of brotherly love. Ask yourself how you're doing in that area. And finally, the message, a reminder to us to proclaim God's judgment is coming, his day is coming, and to let all the nations know, all the peoples of Burbank and Glendale and the Valley, Los Angeles, Know the message of Christ. So spend a moment reflecting on these things. Lord Jesus, we we do eagerly await your return. Can't even fathom what that will be like. We have what your word 
tells us and your spirit who helps us understand. And at the same time, it's just a small picture of that experience. Lord, we know your day is near. It can happen at any moment. I pray, God, you would stir in us a vigilance to live for you and to proclaim that coming day to all who we know or to those in our family, those we work with, friends. Father, I pray you would bless our efforts next Saturday that you would bring many out from Calvary to or share your good news. Lord, that you would use his food packs as another means to spread your gospel and that you would use us each and every day. Lord, for if we truly believe that you are returning, then that message, must we must be compelled to proclaim that message. And pray too, Lord, that you would work in us to be a church that expresses brotherly love that it pours out from each one of us. Thank you for Obadiah, Lord. Thank you for the message that you brought, even the encouragement that I know must have been to people who had been devastated, harmed. Lord, we thank you that you encourage us in that way at the low points in our life. We pray all these things in the name of our Savior. Amen.